think that got it. <laughs> it helps if you turn it on. It's good to be here. Thank you for your attendance here this evening. We appreciate your presence. It's good to be here. As, as Justin said, we're going to be in Romans 6 chapter. I'm going to have the scriptures on the board, uh, but I invite you to, to follow along. This is a, a little different. This is a little different chapter. Um, probably because I'm the one who's doing the study. That makes it, that makes it different. But it is a different chapter. It's a di- it's a chapter that is that is controversial. It's a chapter that that brings up a lot of addresses different doctrines in the denominational world. Ad- addresses different doctrines. So that's a, I don't, this is not going to be a negative sermon, a negative uh, study, if you will. But the Apostle Paul did address problems in the early church. He addressed them in this chapter, and they're addressed. And for that reason, the reason for the reason it's controversial also has brought about a lot of criticism over the centuries. For hundreds, thousands of years now, theologians have tried to discredit this one chapter. They've gone to great extents to discredit this chapter. The first five chapters can be explained. But chapter 6 is too blunt. It's too out there. And the Apostle Paul doesn't pull any punches with this chapter. So let's see what it says. But I would like to talk about this. We're going to be for a little bit in the earlier chapters and see what's actually been, been taught up to this point. But we will have the scripture on the board. Here's a reference to kind of what I'm talking about. It, uh, this commentator said, at this point in Romans, it has become customary for, for commentators to pause here in their explanation and attempt to build a wall of separation between this chapter and the fifth and the first five chapters. This particular guy, for example, laid out this particular commentator that he's referring, H.C.G. Mole, and he was an 18th century commentator, but this has been done for hundreds and hundreds of years, literally. He said for, laid out some 200 lines for this text to de-emphasize chapter 6 of Romans. And the quote from him was given, we sh- he said, we shall now think less directly of the foundations than of the superstructure for which the foundation was laid. So his, his contention and many other scholars is that the first five chapters of Romans is the foundation. And chapter six has some things that they might not care for. So it's merely part of the building. It's not part of the foundation of our Christianity. Now, that's going to some pretty good extremes to explain away chapter 6. Going to some links to do that, and that's not unusual. And the problem is because Romans 6, number 1, early and often teaches baptism. It just does. It teaches obedience to God, obedience to God's Word. It teaches importance of deeds, personal choice, and personal responsibility. Those are some of the things that he teaches in chapter 6, and that's not very popular in, in denominational doctrine. But there's also numerous problems when people try to separate this from the rest of the letter. 
I think it's important that we consider how these letters were written. If we're going to try to take one part out and de-emphasize it at the expense of others, how was it written? The Old Testament, we don't have any, the New or the Old Testament. But we do have some very early textual evidence of the New Testament from the beginning of the second century. Copies that are that old. And those early manuscripts were written in the tradition of the Greek and Latin text of the day, and it was done with no pauses. No pauses between the words. These letters were written, and it's called scriptio continua, and the texts were literally written without punctuation, without pause, without, very difficult to read. They were written in all capital letters with no divisions between the words or sections. Went straight from one word to another with no pauses. The ancient Greek did contain a set of rhetorical particles that indicated on rare occasions, they were not used widely, but they were used to a small extent, which indicated natural pauses and breaks in the text. Early attempts to divide the text in the Bible didn't take place until the 5th century. They did, they called them units. At the time, there weren't paragraphs, there weren't pauses, there weren't periods, there weren't punctuation. There were slight, rare breaks. But this 5th century, they used these units and used the rhetorical particles, they called, they called them, to indicate natural pauses and breaks in the text. At the same time, these Kephaliah divisions in the New Testament were being made. Rudimentary, smaller divisions indicated by simple forms of punctuation took place in the 6th to the 8th century. Can you imagine 16 chapters of Romans being written in one scroll from one end to the other and a few breaks in 16 chapters? How, do you, how can you possibly pull something out of that and say, well, this is different. This is separate. This is So these divisions were made in the 6th to the 8th century. Some attempts at those and were beginning to be done. And, and they would eventually be reflected in the chapter and verse divisions that we have in the Bible since the 13th century. Around 1000 AD, European texts were generally written with spaces between the words. That's how long it took after the Apostle Paul wrote this text. So anytime we think that we can grab something and pull it out of there, makes it difficult. I would like us to look just a little bit, if we can, at, uh, at a few of what is contained in these first few chapters. Got a, a few references here. Romans, the third chapter, verse 23, Paul said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Commentators don't have a problem with that. That goes along with their narrative. Verse 25, who God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. No problems with that. That goes along with the narrative. 
Continuing on, verse 26, to demonstrate at, his, at the present time his righteousness. We have talked about the theme of, Roman is the, of Romans is the righteousness of God, the righteous character of God, and his righteous judgment. So that goes along absolutely true. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So if we don't want to stress baptism, if we don't want to stress obedience, if we don't want to stress personal choice and personal responsibility, this goes along with the narrative. Verse 27, where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That is a reference to the old law, but it has morphed into apart from deeds. We are saved by faith. We absolutely are. But we have to define faith. And certainly that cannot be merely belief only. Faith is defined and it's an active faith. It's a generous faith. It's an obedient, generous faith. Romans, the fifth chapter, there in verse one, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Paul's writing in Ephesians 2, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any one should boast. Those are true statements. They're absolutely true statements. But the Apostle Paul goes into some effort in the sixth chapter of Romans to explain what that means to a Christian. Many of you will remember this diagram. We have the three dispensations of time from creation to the law of Moses, from the law of Moses to the Calvary, and then to today. Three dispensations of time. Click enough buttons, I'll get it all on there. For the first two ages, from, from the creation of the world to the law of Moses, Mount Sinai, and even for most of the world to the time of Christ, all through creation till the time of Christ, moral law ruled for most of the world. If you were a Jew, you had the law of Moses for 1,500 years there in that middle age, the Mosaical age. But for most of the world, the Jews were about 5% of the world's population. For the rest of the world, the only law they had was what they thought was right. Pretty interesting to consider that. So what does that have to do with our with our lesson. Well, Romans 5, Justin did an excellent job two weeks ago. But Romans 5 and verse 12 tells us, therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, what is this one telling us in regard to the doctrine that that we're looking at in chapter 6. This one verse addresses the subject of inherited sin. This one verse addresses 
the popular contention and the growing doctrine in the world today of inherited sin. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. Okay, we know that's Adam. And death through sin. Okay, that tells us death was not present prior to sin. Now, we may want to define death there as spiritual death or physical death. I personally believe that's both. But one through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Original sin said death spread to all men because it came through Adam to us. The scriptures tell us in no uncertain terms that we sinned and brought death upon ourselves. And thus death spread to all men, not because of Adam's sin, but because all sinned. So that's one of the, of the, of the doctrines that's addressed here. Verse 13, for continuation there, don't stop on verse 12, for until the law, we looked at our diagram, prior to the law of Moses, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Sin was in the world. Death was in the world, but there was no law. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness, the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. There was no law. Prior to the law of Moses, there was no law, but people still sinned. How is that? They didn't break any laws. What laws did they break? They sinned. They transgressed the law of God. There was no law. Yes, there was. Yes, there was. There was a law, even though they may not have, and he addresses that in this text as well. God has always punished evil deeds, disobedience, and rewarded obedience. Rewarded faithfulness, not basic belief. James says the devils believe and tremble. If you believe there's one God, congratulations. You do it well. The devils also believe and tremble. But look at just a few examples, and we could cite many before the law of Moses. The flood. 2400 B.C., there was no law. What was violated? God destroyed the entire world with the exception of Noah and his family. There was no law. There was the law of the heart. There was the law that we were given through Adam. There was the conscience that we all have aspects of, okay? How about Sodom and Gomorrah? Actually, there were five cities that were completely and utterly obliterated. Before the law of Moses, some 400 years before the law of Moses. What law did they violate? These were particularly vile cities, vile behavior. But it was known to them they knew that, but they couldn't violate the law of Moses. It was 400 years before the law of Moses. Job, they think it's, uh, these are approximate dates. I know they're not uh, 
super, I don't know if they're super accurate. I, I assume that they are. 1500 BC, about the time of the law of Moses, and he was a Gentile, and he certainly didn't live under the law of Moses. But God said, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. He's righteous and he shuns evil. Even before there was a law, men knew what was right and what was wrong. It's called natural law. It's called moral law. It's called a conscience. And God's given that to each and every one of us. He addresses that in in Romans, these first chapters. But we also know that God's test case in Edom, in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, when he put a tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was God's test case. He was testing us. He knew what the result was going to be. But the last verse in Genesis 2, verse 25, tells us that they did not understand. They were naive. They were innocent. Tells us they were both naked. That's Adam and Eve, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Then a mere six verses later, verse 7, they had both eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what, what does the Bible say there? And the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, God's test case in the garden, he realized that if we sinned, we needed the ability to recognize the fact that we had sinned. Inherent knowledge of right and wrong, a sense of right and wrong. Natural law, moral law, a conscience. There's a term that's being bandied about uh, for, for generations. Uh, man has always had a desire to not be ruled, to not follow laws. And in the, in the Greek, generations ago, they called it antinomianism. Anti meaning against and nomos meaning law. And Merriam-Webster defines that in modern day terms as one who holds that under the gospel of dispensation of grace, that was that first dispensation that we looked at in the chart. Excuse me, it's the last dispensation we looked at, the first one, the patriarchal age, then the mosaical age, then the Christian age. The gospel dispensation of grace under that dispensation, the moral law is of no use or obligation. No morality, no moral law because faith alone is all that's necessary to salvation. Britannica tells us that the Gnostics at the time of Paul, Gnosticism in the early church believed that freedom from the law meant freedom for license. Freedom without limits, without restraint, without control. Let's look at a few more early passages in the first few chapters of Romans. Romans 1.16, very familiar, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Fits the narrative. And it's absolutely true. Verse 18 goes on to talk a little bit more about the Gentiles here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Referring to the Gentiles and all of every age who who, uh, are ungodly and unrighteous, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Moral law. God's revealed himself to us. He's he's given us the ability to recognize good and evil. And he's given us a conscience. He's given us the knowledge to recognize right and wrong. The, the person in deepest, darkest Africa during the, the time of the law of Moses who had never seen a Jew, had no access to anyone, still had the, the moral law, still had the conscience that they could be condemned by if they violated it. Romans 2, for as many as have sinned without the law, verse 12, will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. That's Gentile and Jew. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but doers of the law will be justified. Verse 14, for continuation there. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. Little different chart, the three dispensations of time. Goes into a little bit more detail of these three dispensations from creation to Mount Sinai, the law of Moses and the Mosaical age to the time of Christ and now the Christian age. But all down through time, God's punished evil. He's punished disobedience, whether people were living under that law or not. Whether there was a written law concerning them or not. Regardless of their relationship to God, he was always rewarding faithfulness. And he punished evil. Then the last two verses of Romans 5 tells us, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The problem with moral law is the closer that relative is to me, the more relative it becomes. We always try to explain sin, don't we? We always try to excuse sin. We always try to do that. But the law entered that the offense might abound, that we might understand just how much we need help. This destructive behavior that we tend to, that we tend to to do, 
We need help in dealing with that. We need help in, in managing that and avoiding that. But where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. So the law made, because it defines sin, Paul said, I didn't even know I'd sinned until I read, thou shalt not covet. What would be wrong with wanting something? And wanting it pretty, pretty good. Apparently he wanted it bad enough where he felt it was sinful. But just wanting something. He wasn't guilty of, of a lot of the crimes we think about. He said sin to him was coveting, wanting something. Sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we don't see in these first five chapters, we don't see a difference of what's being taught. And we'll start into, into the sixth chapter. That brings us to the Sorry for the long introduction, but hopefully we have a basis now of what's been taught uh, up until this point. And what's the first sentence? What shall we say then? If we were attempting to find a way to pull this out and set it to the side and say it didn't belong and say it wasn't part of the preceding chapters, then we probably need to get rid of the first sentence. All major translations I've looked at are translated the exact same, what the exact same way. What shall we say then? Or what then shall we say? Based on what's been said very recently in the previous chapter, what are we, what's our conclusion? Based on that, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No limits. No limits on our behavior. That antinomianism, he addresses it in the first verse. Gnosticism, he addresses it in the first verse. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do we have a responsibility even as Christians to live a godly life, to try to avoid sin, to seek God's grace? in taking this destructive behavior and helping us deal with it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Certainly not. Personal responsibility. We can't continue in sin. Personal responsibility. Certainly not. Then he asks a question. How shall we who died to sin live any longer? Hmm. Well, we need to act differently. We cannot continue to, to act the same way that we did before. He's telling us that very emphatically here. We can't act the same way we did before we died. How can we who died to sin live any longer? How did we die? Verse 3, or, let me explain it another way, continuation there, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We're baptized into his death. That's how we died to sin. 
were baptized into Christ's death. Continues on, he explains it. Therefore, another continuation. Verse 4, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We're baptized into his death, buried with him into death. We're baptized into Christ. And because of that, we're baptized. In, in doing that, we're also baptized into his death. We're dying with Christ. He'll continue on here in just a minute. Dead to sin in Christ. And we, we accomplish that. God bestows that upon us when we're baptized but we arise to walk, the personal responsibility is ours that when we arise to walk from the watery grave of baptism, we act differently. We don't do the same things that we were doing before. Personal responsibility and deeds. Verse five, for if we've been united, King James says planted, both are very uh, accurate. It is and the effect of a seed, but we're united in that burial. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the holy, that the body, excuse me, the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We're starting to get the picture now of how God considers us dead to sin. We have a responsibility ourselves to help in that effort, being dead to sin. Colossians 3 and verse 5, Paul put it this way, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Back to our text. Verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, how did we, do, how did we accomplish that? We're baptized into Christ, and therefore we were baptized into his death. That's how we died to sin. He said, he who died has been freed from sin, justified, freed. You can't sin anymore in the grave, can we? Has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. It's difficult to think that death even had dominion over Christ. He allowed that to happen. He took our sins and participated in death, but no longer. He allowed that to take place. He released himself to death, allowed himself to die on that cross. Not because of, of his sins, but because our sins. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also 
reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To reckon there means to resolve. It means to make the determination to decide that we're going to do what's necessary to keep sin out of our life. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse, verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey. Again, we're going to be obeying sin, Satan, or we're going to be obeying righteousness in Christ to God. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of righteousness. Our entire bodies as instruments of righteousness, uh, excuse me, instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Everything he said here is talking about responsibility. Everything he said in these first 14 verses have been talking about being baptized into Christ, being and participating in his death, burial, and resurrection so we can also share in that resurrection with him. And all these things, personal responsibility, reckon ourselves, Decide ourselves what, that we're going to help in this effort, that we're going to do what's necessary to avoid the sin. He said, you're not under law, but under grace. That doesn't negate. Absolutely, we are. Absolutely, we are under, the, under grace. We're not under the old law anymore. We're under grace. And what a blessing that is. What an incredible, out of the three dispensations of time, they can't compare. The other two can't compare to this one. With the blessings that we all share in grace, in Christ, Holy Spirit helping us, that's going to be in Romans 8, coming up in a couple of weeks. Christ interceding on the right hand of God for us. All mankind, the family of God in heaven and on earth, fellowship with us. What a blessing that is. God's complete word revealed for us. No more piecemeal, no, no more from a, from a prophet over here and a prophet over there, and this one changes it. No, no more. The complete revealed word of God that they've never had in the past dispensations of time. Joint praise. I don't think we often appreciate, I don't, like I should, when this place is full and we start singing, I don't know of anything. It's more uh, exhilarating, more spiritually moving than praise. Communion, joint communion. We have the blessing of that, communing with God and the family of God in heaven and earth. Daily prayer, that may be the one thing that's been available to mankind for the last 6,000 years. Still available still important, still so beneficial. Encouragement, comfort, hope. We could go on and on and on. But under grace ultimately means life, love, mercy, and forgiveness in Christ. 
in Christ, and we've talked about in Christ, how we get there. We're baptized into Christ, therefore baptized into his death. Since creation all down through time, God has punished evil and rewarded obedience and faithfulness, regardless of whether there was a written law or not. doesn't mean we could ever deserve God's grace, it doesn't mean we could ever deserve any of the blessings that he gave us, let alone salvation. We could never earn that. But it doesn't relieve us of the responsibility and the pleasure we have to render service and obedience to God through his word. Not under law, but under grace. We are. Absolutely, that's a true statement. We know it is, but it has to be taken in the context of under grace means the grace of God and all those things that go along with it. It doesn't relieve us of the responsibility to render obedience to God. The law he mentions there, not under law, but under grace. But you know, there's numerous places in the Bible where The New Testament, the law of Jesus Christ is called a law with limitations under penalty of law. Romans 8 calls it the spirit, uh, the law of the spirit of life. Romans 3 says the law of faith. Galatians 2, uh, 6 and 2 calls it the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9 and 21 calls it the law toward Christ. And James 1 and 2, he refers to it as the law of liberty and the perfect law. Of liberty. Under grace doesn't mean there are no commandments to keep. We should want to do that. We're commanded to do that. And God blesses those who are faithful in their obedience to him. Verse 15, what then? Again, another continuation. Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? One more time, he asks asks that question, doesn't he? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Obedience. We are going to be obedient to sin or to righteousness, to Satan or to God, to destruction or to life. The limitations that God places on us are not restrictions to keep us from having a good time. They're not some type of corral to keep us from doing what we want to do. They're helping us to avoid dangerous, destructive behavior. Therefore, our benefit. Freedom from law meant freedom for license. He's definitely put that to sleep, hadn't he? There are five points in Calvinism. First one is total depravity. They were born in sin. I think we've put that to rest. Through one man, sin came into the world. But we sinned, so we brought death upon ourselves. He didn't do that. He brought sin. Adam brought sin into the world. 
but we send ourselves, bringing death on ourselves. Unconditional election, that God chooses his elect, predestined them, and we have no control over that. Personal choice, that's contradicted in everything we've read here today. Personal choice, personal responsibility, and then the grace of God certainly comes in on that. Limited atonement, that Christ died for the elect only, not for all men. Second Peter 3 said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. So some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Limited atonement, according to popular doctrine in the denominational world. Irresistible grace. There's not anything we can do to, to keep from being a child of God. That choice is God's, not ours. And then perseverance of the saints that we can't be lost either. But God punishes disobedience. We could go on and on. But this is, is what Paul has been addressing in this chapter from one end to the other, from the entire book of Romans. In all of his writings, verse 17, but God be thanked that you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. What was that? You were buried with him in baptism, buried into his death. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's righteous conduct. That's good behavior. Verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, sin leading to more sin, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for more righteousness, for holiness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Over and over, the theme in Romans and most of the writings of Paul is in Christ. And he's laid it out very definitively how we get to be in Christ. None of these doctrines are supported in the book of Romans. James teaches the same, the same doctrine when he said in James 1, starting in verse 22, he said, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one shall be blessed in his deeds. We're under grace. Paul tells us that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places 
in Christ. The greatest of which is life, love, and mercy. In Christ. In Christ. We'll conclude our study there. Appreciate your attention. Look forward to the seventh chapter, and I would encourage you to read that, read ahead. Um, Very interesting as well. But we never want to close without extending an invitation to anyone that might have a need, whether it's the prayers of the church or we can assist you by obeying your Lord in baptism. We'd love to assist you with that at this time. If you have a need, please come forward. Let your wishes be known as we stand and sing.